This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here's Shahan Jehuraja and Bobek Hayeri. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the College Football Survivor Show. I'm Bobek Hayeri with my co-host Shahan Jehuraja, national college football writer for CBS Sports. During the season, we examine the past to crowning an ultimate survivor in each year's college football playoff championship. But in the offseason, we broaden our topics a little bit. So today, we're going to talk about who we think are some of the biggest winners and losers of this offseason, which it's really only been, it's been barely like a month and a half since the season ended. But man, it's been a busy offseason so far. As always, you can find us on X and TikTok at CFB Survivor Show, where we have video highlights, run polls, and listen to your feedback. Please, if you get a chance, take a moment to like, rate, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We enjoy your reviews greatly. But all that said, John, what are your thoughts right now? I mean, how are you feeling? It's been a hectic offseason. I'll, I'll tell you what, obviously, I think that we knew that this was going to be a longer offseason in a lot of ways because Jim Harbaugh stretched out the calendar because of his NFL dalliance. But what I don't think that we expected is, one, uh, the retirement of Nick Saban, which has completely shifted not just Alabama, but every program in college football. And I think the other thing that's been uh, kind of an interesting surprise is the number of assistants going both ways uh, between college and the NFL, right? Well, obviously, there's so much focus on, well, you know, Jeff Halfley leaving to be a defensive coordinator or whatever. Uh, but I think that we've also seen a number of NFL assistants who were maybe on staffs that were let go coming down to the college ranks. Uh, Eric Bieniemy over at UCLA, a great example of that. So it's been kind of a unique offseason for that reason. Because of the staff changes, we've seen the portal calendar just kind of continue on and on and on. I mean, I, I think maybe UCLA might be in a position where their portal is still technically open at this point. Maybe we're kind of reaching the end of it right now. But I, I don't think anybody expected this to stretch on as long as it has. We're finally getting to the point of getting to actual spring football, actual camp, actual you know full staffs, hopefully. But we also can't forget, we're going to have a post-spring window, which is going to start this whole clock over again. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some teams there that we're going to be talking about probably that have loaded their their uh, rosters. But after spring, maybe one or two people are going to be like, OK, this is maybe too loaded and I'm not quite near the top. Is We'll see how that goes. And there's going to be, as we said, teams that are looking to, to fill gaps, fill holes, especially after that last round um, and how late it went. You know, kind of just really quick comment. One thing on the, the coaching moves. 
the way I've been looking at it is I think we're seeing an interesting shakeout of coaches who prefer the college ranks and prefer, especially the head coaches, who prefer this weird game that's kind of been created. Because, I mean, I sympathize with those who are like, this isn't when I started being an X's and O's coach 20, 30 years ago. This is not how I thought being a head coach was going to be when I reached it. So I'm wondering over time, are we going to see a, kind of a move and a shake of coaches who enjoy really this, the, the silliness of college football and those who prefer a little more certainty and, and go into the NFL? It's going to be fascinating to see that because that's the one thing everyone's like oh they're going to the nfl because they want an easier lifestyle i'm like i if you've talked to some nfl coaches that's a pretty bold statement um because i mean again they're very well compensated i'm not trying to say that they they don't deserve it but it it's it's an intense lifestyle on either side i think it just depends how you like your intensity but all of that said, I thought we'd uh, start a little bit about who we think some of the winners are. It's so funny. I wrote down five. And I, real quick question. I'm sorry. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to maybe pull my age out one more time. Do you remember Five Alive? Like the drink? That, no, I have no idea what you're talking oh, about. Man, I looked it up. They apparently don't sell it in the U.S. anymore. Um, not because of bad things. Not you know. Not after all those kids died. No, no. It's like it was um, Sunny D's rival. It was a Minute Maid drink. They were these things where when I was a kid. Um, you always thought they were cool because they'd advertise them. They'd say they're like healthy. Sunny D was notorious because my mom even told me like, oh, yeah. I remember in like the 80s or 70s when they said like, yeah, this is like just sugar water, right? And But they would sell it like, oh, it's all this fresh juice and all this stuff. So Five Alive was one of those. So now that I have spent a uh, couple of seconds on feeling really old, um, by the way, the other thing that came up is like Dazed and Confused. If that movie came out today, it would have been about 2007. So to me, again, like this kind of moment of like, holy cow, I, I, I saw Days and Confused in 93 when it came out. To suddenly realize how, how okay, uh, I'm, I'm having a, a, an existential crisis here, but I'm going <laughs> to move on. What year do you think it is right now? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, moving on. So looking at some of these, the winners and losers, uh, I'll let you kick off. Who do you think some of the winner, the, the biggest winners have been so far this offseason? Yes. Yeah, so just to kind of take a step back and and let people into what we're doing, right? We're about to hit March. We're about to hit the opening of camp. For all intents and purposes, this, this window has ended. And I want to talk about the teams who maybe, when we start to look forward, projecting our playoff, have either gained the most ground or maybe lost the most ground. And I don't think you can have this conversation without talking about Ohio State. Ohio State saw Michigan go and win a national championship. And Ryan Day said, oh God, oh no, I'm in big trouble if I don't make something happen right now. And for all of his credit, I think that he has had a hell of an offseason. Brings in first Bill O'Brien as offensive coordinator, but in, a, in my opinion, actually upgrades, gets Chip Kelly over from UCLA, a sitting Big Ten head coach to come run the offense, a, a coach who coached Ryan Day during his time at New Hampshire. So I think that partnership is going to work really well. And the fact that Ryan Day is an offensive recruiter should maybe help fill in some of the things that Chip Kelly doesn't want to do at the collegiate level. But look at what they did in the portal as well. They bring in Quinshaw Judkins 
from Ole Miss, uh, one of the best running backs in the country over the last two years, going to be a perfect complement next to Travion Henderson, more of a muscle uh, kind of all-purpose back versus Travion Henderson, who's such an explosive player. And, uh, and, and I do actually want to even point out, they retained a number of players who, in my opinion, they really shouldn't have retained. Emeka Egbuka should be going to the NFL. Travion Henderson should be going to the NFL. Jack Sawyer, JT Tuimoloau. Like, these are some of the best players in college football who would have been picked in the first three rounds of the NFL draft, and they came back because they wanted a chance to beat Michigan. But even going down the list of other transfers, you bring in Caleb Downs as probably the best overall safety in the country coming from Alabama. And we're going to talk about his old team in a second. Trust me. Uh, Julian Sain, another player from that same program at quarterback alongside Will Howard. So you kind of got the old and the young at the same time at quarterback. So I would uh, look, I, I think that Will Howard's a really good player. It would not surprise me at all if he starts the whole season, but you finally have some insurance I think with Julian Sain coming in as well, uh, it, you know, and he's going to have a chance to compete with Devin Brown and with uh, Aaron Nolan coming in a, as well at quarterback. That's a huge number of, of upgrades of the position. Uh, and then Seth McLaughlin on the offensive line. Obviously, people remember him for having a very, very bad college football playoff, but he was a good player for the last two years before that. You kind of just hope he can get his head screwed on straight. But I think that when you look at their additions, it's not the sheer number of additions that stands out. It's the number of additions that are quality, that are almost surefire players. We know what Caleb Downs is going to be at Ohio State University. It's filling holes and it's retentions. Like, again, the number of retentions that this program had to go into 2024 with a chance to go and beat Michigan and compete for the college football playoff and win a national championship. This team has as good a case as any to be the preseason number one team in the country and heading into this offseason. I don't know if they would have been in my mind with who they were expected to lose a top five team. So when you talk about the biggest risers of the early offseason so far, I think Ohio State has to be number one on the list. I completely agree. And, you know, you, you touched on the whole Bill O'Brien and Chip Kelly even upgrading what was seemed like an, an upgrade to begin with. But again, even behind the house, like we're recording this right now on a Monday morning. One of the stories I read was uh, that they brought Sam Petito, the former Alabama director of personnel operations in at Ohio State. They're not only and you, you touched on this, you impl implied it that the, a lot of these additions are complementary of each other. Like you have two strong running backs and brought in Chip Kelly, who for all the he's, I mean, the, the more casual fan might know him for quarterbacks, but he's also very committed to the run. So that's going to be a wonderful balance that he can develop with the sheer talent he has there, but also to build that kind of back of the house side of it, to have someone who can help with recruiting, help bring in personnel and, and was a key component of Nick Saban's staff. That, again, shows a level of commitment that, I mean, let's say the worst case scenario happens and somehow they, they lose some games that they're not supposed to and, and Ohio State pulls a cord on uh, Ryan Day, that just this past couple of months, they will have built something that made Ohio State stronger than it had been before, um, which I didn't really anticipate. I mean, we knew Michigan was going to be rebuilding to some extent and it was going to give Ohio State that opportunity to come back. And then, of course, they had a pretty miserable showing in the uh, in the bowl games, which made sense because, again, it was a lot of people just weren't. It was a low motivation game for them and a high motivation game for Mizzou. But. The schedule for them next season looks decent and they have reloaded the way they have and and raised themselves up. Absolutely. I mean, really, the only big question is how much do they retain after this? Because they're so loaded, especially at the quarterback position. I'm very curious to see 
if anybody departs in the spring transfer window, particularly from that quarterback room. But we'll see. I mean, again, not enough can be said about that. You know, I was kind of thinking my extension of a team that, and again, I'm saying relative here, because Ohio State now we're talking about like, wow, they're the preseason number one, almost certainly, um, at least at this stage, you know, they're going to be a national title contender. I'm going to talk about a team that isn't a national title contender, but seemed moribund until they actually poached someone from Ohio State. Bill O'Brien went to Boston College. That is not a hire I would have ever expected for Boston College. But if you know some of the background, I mean, obviously he's coached in that region before. He's obviously coached, you know, Tom Brady at one point. He obviously brought Penn State back in two seasons before he went into the Texans. You know, I know there's somewhat of a personal reason for that. His son um, is, is undergoing treatment in the Boston area. So that brings him closer in that regard. But Boston College, I mean, I remember the first time I went to that campus, uh, I went to watch a game there and it is so small. Like you don't realize it. Um, it's actually funny because it's not in Boston, except for the stadium. It, the, the, it sits across the, the, the municipal border. So the Boston College Stadium, Alumni Stadium is actually in the city of Boston. The rest of the campus is not. But it's a, it's a pretty campus, but it's a small campus. And the idea that they're able to compete on the ACC level, let alone as, you know, against the other power programs was always an amazing thing. So their expectations have always been reasonable. They were kind of in that same basket as not quite. I mean, they've had historically more success in Wake Forest had at least in the long term, if you look further back. But the idea of them being able to bring in a talent like that, I think, is going to keep them relevant because that's been big danger as we move forward. As we see, I don't know, the mid-two or however you want to call the ACC and Big 12, there would be a concern that if especially the ACC were to break apart, as Florida State seems to be a potential cause for, what would happen to some of these teams? And Boston College was always one of those teams where you're like, oh, I'm not sure what happened to them. This gives them an opportunity to start building again and start building interest again, start recruiting again, and potentially be a team that you know, again, we're going to be realistic here. Once in a blue moon, have such a season. And Boston College has had that. They, they absolutely have had seasons where they've done remarkably well and they've gotten into the top 10. They could make them a playoff team. It's not inconceivable for them. Maybe not to win the ACC, but in a once in a blue moon, even being that large team. I think this higher, and I know I've read some people that are critical about it, like, oh, he's been in the NFL for the last 10 years. I'm like, okay, yes, but... If the, the situation he took over at Penn State was so dire and to be able to get what he got out of that team and have someone who's motivated and interested to be your head coach in a very tough situation, that's a huge deal. And I think uh, I think that makes Boston College one of the surprise winners. I don't I don't see the vision personally. Like I, I'm not quite there with you. I do like some of the guys that they brought in. Kamari Morales as a tight end from North Carolina, Treshawn Ward from Kansas State at running back. Like I, I think that. I think that he has in the short term already showed a little bit more ability to leverage the portal than we've seen. At the same time, this and it's maybe this is unfair because they're just all like Northeastern programs. This is just like Jim Mora going to UConn, or this is just like uh, uh, Don Brown going to UMass. Uh, you, you know, I maybe it'll work. I I mean, I think that that to say that it has the upside of them competing for the ACC, I I do not see that. 
when you talk about them, I'm not saying year after year. I'm not saying year after year. But, but there's a chance. Their up season was like, hey, we happened to run into Matt Ryan. Like, that's nice. I, if they can get Matt Ryan again, I agree. They're going to be in good shape. I do think that the thing that uh, that I do like about it, and this is going to sound a little weird, but but I, I mean it. Like, I think that he is going to bring some stability because I think that he just kind of wants to be there. I think he just kind of wants to be settled. I think that we see with, uh, and this is obviously not a group of five job, but, but when you talk about some of these group of five jobs that have done a good job, uh, I look at like the Frank Solich, right? Where you have, um, you know, the former Nebraska coach take over uh, at Ohio. He's there for 15 years, does a great job. And ultimately that stability ends up being a huge boost for the program. And I think that Boston College could look back at it like this. I'm going to be curious the upside uh, again. I mean, when we're talking about finishing with more than seven wins in the ACC, the last time that happened was 2009. And the last time they won 10 was with Matt Ryan. So I'm not all the way there where you are, but I am intrigued with the decision. I'm going to stick with another team, though, where I think that their biggest upgrade is a coaching change. And that's Michigan State. Michigan State brings in Jonathan Smith from Oregon State. And I'll tell you what, they might have accidentally gotten lucky as hell because I think that Jonathan Smith would have been under heavy consideration to be the head coach at Washington if he was still at Oregon State when that job change happened. But Michigan State locks up their guy. They signed him to a long-term contract. And you're already starting to see some of the benefits. They put together a great transfer class, uh, a number 21 transfer class in the country, headlined by Aiden Childs, who 247 rated the number one quarterback in the class. He's a dynamic athlete. They have not had a player like him. Off, I mean, offensively, gosh, when is the last time they had a player who was as explosive as Aiden Childs? It's, I mean, are, are we going back to like Le'Veon Bell? I, I, I'm sure there's somebody I'm forgetting, but it's been a while. They, they weren't known for their dynamic offensive players. And you talk about also what they bring in on the defensive side of the ball. They knew that they kind of had to shore up some things on that side. So I really like the long-term vision of this hire. I, I think that he is a fit for Michigan State. I think that, uh, look, when you are Michigan State, uh, you should certainly take a backseat to nobody. But I think you also need to know how to do things in a complementary way. I guess I would say where, you know, Michigan and Ohio state are going to get a lot of the attention. And so you need to be able to win in your own way. We started that with Mark D'Antonio. He was able to win in Ohio with sort of second level recruits who he could develop. I think that Jonathan Smith fits this a lot. And with, by the way, Jim Harbaugh and a number of other people from Michigan going to the NFL, this is an opportunity for Michigan state, not to necessarily reach national championship level, but to, build something sustainable in both the short and long term. So I really like what they've put together. They're a program that I think is on the upswing. You know, I'm going to go a little more mainstream then with this selection. No BC, but I'm going to go with another Catholic university, Notre Dame. I think they arguably, and I'm going to go, to me, what really pushed them over the top wasn't, they've done, they did well with the transfer portal. Obviously, Riley Leonard, a uh, couple of really solid wideouts, especially Chris Mitchell from FIU. That was a huge get. I mean, again, the sorry to use the G5's farm team, but that was a great example of, of wow, look how well he did at FIU. Imagine what he can do here. Um, obviously, staff, they brought Mike Denbrock from LSU to bring, brought him back. It's his third time at the program, you know, for a legitimate reason. I mean, Gerard Parker is now the, the head coach of Troy. Um, 
you know, interesting, Mike Brown from Wisconsin, he, though, as a wide receivers coach, he's again, another good one. Cause I remember when he was, uh, uh, he was, he was there at Cincy for a while, but what really pushed Notre Dame over the top is because they won with the playoff realignment. I mean, it's 12 team now, but if it, even if it's 14 or 16 at this point in time, I think Notre Dame got a lot out of it. Now you saw some of the weird, like, again, uh, some Folks who whose opinions, you know, they're out there, but they're not necessarily all that interesting or relevant. Um, and I'm not talking anyone from the major sports media. I just want to be clear. You know, oh, no, they're, they can't get a, a, a first round buy. Well, yeah, they, they may not be able to get a first round buy in the 12 team playoff again for two years. TBD where we're going after two years. But they are not they don't play a conference title game. So they kind of break even in that sense. So they already weren't going to be playing an extra game because they don't have a conference title game. So the opportunity to then just go into the playoff, potentially, if you're a higher seed, face a, a fairly weak opponent. Um, well, fairly, relatively speaking, uh, especially if you get the, well, maybe if you get the G5 team and then you get like last year's Liberty team. Um, but still, I think they they won out because they get to stay independent. They get to, to keep their whatever, all the financial benefits that they see for themselves. And for at least... Two more years, Notre Dame is going to be just as relevant as it has been. Maybe not. And again, that, that's when you get the push and the pull. It's not the, your your grandfather's Notre Dame. We're not talking like 60s, 50s, 70s Notre Dame. We're talking the Notre Dame of the last decade where, yeah, they can make it. They made it in the college football playoff twice when it was only four teams. I think they're quite capable of getting in in a 12-team playoff and certainly um, to be able to keep their independence in the process. Because, I mean, that was the big thing. And we were talking before the show. Right before the show, UMass and the MAC have announced that they're going to be – the UMass is going to join the MAC and finally have a conference. UMass and UConn were the two teams that were looking pretty dire going into this because without being in a conference, their chances of becoming that large bid just wasn't plausible. Army has joined Conference USA, for those who may have forgotten. So Notre Dame, though, they are the exception to the rule. They are the independent that can make independence work. Um, I think they, they're one of the big winners in all of this. No, I, I think that that's a great pick. I actually didn't have them on my list, and I, I regret that now. I, I think you mentioned the Mike Denbrock hire. That's going to, I think, be huge. I made the comment before, and I'll make it again. I don't know what machinations went on behind the scenes to get Gerard Parker the, uh, <laughs> the Troy job, but uh, I know that Marcus Freeman should be pretty excited about however that happened because I don't think that he did. Uh, I, I don't think he was quite ready for the job that he had last year. And, and Mike Denbrock is a proven assistant coach who's going to be working with as much talent as anybody. And the other thing that I'll mention too is, uh, you know, Steve Angeli had a really good bowl game. And actually, you know, the big question about Notre Dame last year heading into the bowl game, if we want to roll the bowl game into being part of the offseason, I mean, they had some receivers show out. Jaden Thomas, Jordan Faison, these were not guys who necessarily got a lot of opportunity during the regular season, but I think that that gives me a lot more optimism about what they can be, not even counting then bringing in Bo Collins as a transfer from Clemson as well, who was like the one receiver who kind of did something at Clemson. And so I like what they are a lot. I, I think that they have a very bright future, like you mentioned. I haven't even mentioned the name Riley Leonard as yet, who's going to be one of the best quarterbacks in college football next year. And I mean, this is hilarious, right? 
Riley Leonard has never played behind an offensive line where he gets more than like 1.7 seconds to throw. <laughs> what is he going to be capable of playing behind one of the best offensive line programs in the country with a receiver in Jaden Greathouse, who I have talked about all year long. I think that he has legit number one overall receiver potential. So uh, they do have to settle that wide receiver question a little bit. But if they can, with a quarterback who I think should be huge for them, I'm very excited about what this team could be. I, I think that they're going to be in the conversation to, I, I don't know if I can get them all the way to the top five, but I think that they'll be in my contention for being a top five team. And I think they're absolutely on track at this time to be a playoff team. I'm going to go to a team next that I think similar to Ohio State says, now is the time. But we're, we're done messing around. Now is the time. And that's Ole Miss. Ole Miss was extremely aggressive in the transfer portal on both sides of the ball. They understand that when they play Alabama and Georgia, they have not been ready to hang in the trenches, and they attack that in a huge way. They brought in two transfers from Washington's Joe Moore Award-winning offensive line, who are going to be starting on the offensive line for them next year. They brought in the top non-quarterback transfer of the offseason in Walter Nolan on the defensive line. He is one of those players that you cannot match. I I've made the case before. This is the kind of player who Texas A&M prevented from going to Alabama or to Georgia through NIL because there's no reason that a guy like this should be on the market. And Ole Miss now has him because of the transfer portal. Uh, they also bring in Princely Uma Milin from, uh, from Florida, who was their top edge rusher. So, I, I mean, when you look at all the pieces, there's just so much to like. And I was not a Jackson Dart guy heading into last year. I, I still don't think he's a star. I don't think he's an elite level quarterback, but I think he's good enough. If you put enough around him, I, th I think he's good enough. Uh, I think he has more upside as a passer than I felt like he did early in his career, where I just felt like he was very limited. Uh, and the other thing, too, you bring in uh, Juice Wells as a transfer at wide receiver from South Carolina, who was on track to be one of the best wide receivers in the SEC before he got hurt earlier last year. So they understand we can't sit and wait around for Alabama or Georgia to fall off. Now, maybe Alabama, obviously, uh, with, with Nick Saban leaving, that's going to be an interesting situation. But we understand we have to be able to hang with Georgia. With Nick Saban gone, we have to be able to hang with Alabama. Uh, we have to be able to hang with Texas as they come in, with LSU, with Oklahoma, all of these teams. And when I look at this, this team, I mean, they would have had a very good case and a chance to be a college football playoff team not just last year, but over the last couple of years, they would have made it a couple of times. This is a situation where I think that Ole Miss should be aiming for a top six or seven seed in the college football playoff and have an opportunity to win a first round game, to, to play one of the top four uh, in a neutral side game. And I think that for me, this team should be looking at a final four like they should be looking at being in that final four group whenever the college football playoff comes around now again matchups and, and stuff like that can ruin opportunities but that's the level that i think that this team should think of itself at and for the first time maybe since lane kiffin's been a head coach i feel like they actually have a roster and a staff and a culture that may be ready to compete for a national championship
<laughs> this is 2011 erasure. Sorry, that USC team that couldn't go up in the postseason, like they just finished their season clobbering UCLA 50 to zero, and then UCLA had to go play in the title game. <laughs> but you know, I I agree with you. I think you know, as 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 playoff, uh, or I should say, as portal happy as Lane Kiffin is, the portal is now all Miss ready. Or I should say, the playoff is now all Miss ready. Wow, I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I got my brain turned around right there. Oh my goodness. But I think, you know, I mean, really the only thing that I've got maybe possible concerns I could throw off Ole Miss would just be how well the transfers all mesh together. But I think he's proven that he's good at putting these teams together year after year. And and as you pointed out, they should have been in the playoff had they been 12 teams in the previous years. So I don't see any reason to to doubt them. I mean, again, they lost Quinchon Judkins. That was a one surprise in the portal season. But then Logan Diggs from LSU should be another good part of that of that running game for them. So I think Ole Miss is a great selection. They were on my list. Now, the other one I'm going to throw out there is a team that brought some talent in, certainly, but was remarkable for how solid and unassailable it was, for how much it kept together. And that's Oregon. Because specifically the talent at the the coaching level, to keep your head coach, to keep your key coordinators. Meanwhile, Washington, I think to the surprise of everyone, again, thanks, Nick Saban, is now completely rebuilding itself in so many ways, um, talent and coaching-wise. And then to say nothing about the portal, they went out there, they got Dylan Gabriel, uh, obviously from Oklahoma, great quarterback there. Uh, maybe not a super elite quarterback, but certainly someone who should be able to plug in uh, into that Oregon offense. And then Dante Moore from UCLA with a lot of upside there. Um, he was a young man thrown into a tough situation. Didn't quite go as well as maybe UCLA fans would hope, but that doesn't didn't denigrate his talent level. They brought in some line. They, they brought in some linemen, uh, Matthew Bedford. Uh, they brought some guys on the defensive side of the ball. They even brought in a D2 rusher, which... I guess is now a trendy thing to do after uh, Mizzou proved that that can be quite successful. They brought North uh, Northwest Missouri State's Jay Harris to be uh, their new back. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. And again, I, I love that, by the way, because D2 football, historically, you occasionally, I mean, people are really into the draft, but sometimes see, you know, some D2 guys get it in, you know, and all that stuff, especially on the line and stuff like that. But the portal has made a lot of these, these guys, I think, a little more attractive, particularly... Um, I don't know if it's always been that way or if it's something more recent, but again, I'm, I'm happy to see this. These guys deserve recognition and especially an opportunity to, to show that they can compete on college football's highest level. But their schedule is also really favorable. Again, I mean, that that's not something that necessarily happened in the offseason, but when you look at how things are coming, but actually one thing that has helped their schedule in the offseason, Michigan and Washington are on that schedule and both are rebuilding. Their toughest game, in my opinion, is Ohio State, which is coming to you and stronger than ever. But the other two, those those are winnable games, very winnable games. So my only real question for them is who wins the quarterback battle? And they are heading into a tougher conference than the one they were in. But I think Ohio, uh, Oregon has is heading into this season, especially with this offseason behind. I mean, again, I still can't believe, you know, I read an interesting position. Somebody had like, well, Oregon maybe was lucky that Dan Lanning lost the two games to Washington because that made Kalen DeBoer so attractive that Alabama just went and took him. So in the long run, maybe that benefited Oregon heading into the next season and their ability to hang on to him. Um, as long as Phil Knight lives, I think they're going to be doing fine. I know. So I'm going to just put them as one of my big offseason winners. Yeah, I think that Phil Knight uh, sometime in the past couple months realized that he's 86 years old and that, you know what, uh, why not try to win a national championship right now? I I think it's so fascinating that Dan Lanning uh, very much was courted for the Alabama job and 
decided that there was enough and enough opportunity at Oregon that actually it's a better role long term to stay at this program. Uh, and and yeah, you mentioned when you look at the guys they brought in, Evan Stewart at receiver is just an unbelievable get. He's going to step in and immediately replace Troy Franklin, I, I think, at that wide receiver position. Uh, I like having a, sort of like Ohio State, the old and young at quarterback, where you know if Dante Moore becomes ready, then maybe he has a chance to step in and, and provide an upgrade. Uh, they understood we're going to lose a lot to the draft uh, at defensive backs. So they brought in four high-level defensive backs uh, as transfers. And by the way, none of this even gets into the fact that they have the number four recruiting class in the country, led by TJ Rushing, uh, a superstar defensive end from Arizona. So like they are... They are cooking right now. They are getting whatever they want, whenever they want. It's pretty impressive to see what they've done over the last little while. Another team that I'll mention quickly that I think is kind of in that mold of being very targeted with what they're doing is Texas. Texas has... They have basically seen Alabama and said, we want that. And we think that we have the ability to do that. We're not gonna, we're not gonna spray, you know, an aisle everywhere in the portal. We're gonna say, here are the specific pieces and players that we want, and we're gonna go take them. And I look at Isaiah Bond, yeah. who didn't even give Kalen DeBoer's new staff a chance at Alabama, immediately jumped in the portal, immediately ended up at text, immediately posted a picture uh, with a Lamborghini. That's a whole other conversation. Uh but Andrew Makuba, a safety transfer from Clemson, actually returns home. He played at LBJ outside of Austin, and he has been one of the most exciting safeties in the country over the past couple of years. Uh, Trey Moore, a transfer who I believe finished number two or number three in the country in sacks during his time at UTSA. Uh, and Amari Nyblack, a tight end also coming from Alabama. The one thing you do have to mention about Texas and their offseason is is that they had the first real staff attrition since Steve Sarkeesian became head coach, uh, with Bo Davis going to LSU, defensive line coach. Uh, linebacker coach um, uh, Jeff Choate becomes the head coach at Nevada. So they have some legitimate questions, but nothing crazy. And I think the other thing you have to mention, too, is that when you have – uh, I think some really good administration at the top with Steve Sarkeesian. When you've got coordinators that I think are really exciting, you, you bring in, by the way, uh, Johnny Nansen, the former defensive coordinator at Arizona, who did a hell of a job uh, during his time at Arizona. He rejoins his friend Steve Sarkeesian at Texas as a position coach, by the way, which is a whole other, I mean, oh my gosh, that, that's crazy stuff. But I think that ultimately there's enough stability in place and enough administration in place uh, that I think that Texas is going to have a chance to once again be really good next year. When we think about it, think back, it, the playoff ended in January. Only one of the four head coaches in the college football yeah. playoff is still a head coach at their program. And that is Steve Sarkeesian at the University of Texas. So Similar deal. They should very much expect to be in the college football playoff. They should very much expect to compete with Georgia for the SEC next year. And uh, I think it's going to be fascinating to see with the grind that they're going to be up against. Are they built for it? You know, I think that makes a good transition to maybe some of the losers uh, in the offseason. And only because, 
as you brought up with Nansen, uh, Arizona was on my list of some of the losers. And to be fair, it, it, there are so many things going wrong for the Wildcats that have nothing to do with football. I mean, that entire accounting error that, I mean, yeah, it isn't in the 200 millions. It's only in the 170 millions, apparently, has put their, their whole yeah, yeah, yeah. It's put their school in a whole awkward situation. And I know I was listening to an interview with Jed Fish. He was talking about leaving because obviously he departed to go to Washington, took some of his key coaches with him um, uh, to, to, to be there as well. And, um, you know, he was talking about the fact that now I can I have money to, to you know, hire more assistants to do a better job, you know, and and, and I know it was tough for him. Um, I, but I don't entirely blame him. I mean, Arizona is in a really awkward spot. So, yeah, they were able to get. Um, uh, Brett Brennan from San Jose State. Not he's a good coach. He's a solid coach. Not the 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 sexiest hire because again, San Jose State's never really been a program where you can have huge expectations. Uh, I mean, again, historically, just a just a winning season is a is a triumph <laughs> uh, for the Spartans down there. So, and his salary, as noted, isn't even really all that different than what he was getting paid there because he needed to shift money to bring in some coordinators. And granted, I was impressed he brought in Dino Babbers to be his offensive coordinator. You know, obviously the Syracuse job as a head coach didn't work out for him, but he was a talented offensive coordinator before. He was able to keep Noah Fafita and Jaden Clark, and some of the talent is still there. But still, ultimately, money keeps you relevant. And we're, oh, Arizona is was kind of an unexpected program to see suffer in all of this because of uh, of a of an own goal had nothing to do. It isn't the same situation as Wazoo and Oregon State where you're like, oh my gosh, after the money runs out in a couple of years, what are they going to do? This is a team that should have been. I mean, you look at the other uh, pack schools that are going into the Big Twelve; they don't have the same kind of you know the tripping into it, and especially after such a strong end of their season, this is a real disappointing thing to see. So I think the what could have been a much more attractive uh, uh, Wildcats team heading into this upcoming season is going to be at best a wait and see approach, but I'm not necessarily uh, to their benefit. Again, keeping a few key players will keep them potentially in games, but I'm not necessarily sure they, uh, they definitely are a lot lower than I would have given them given what happened in the last month and a half. Yeah. I, I think obviously the fact that they were able to keep no Fafita and Tetroya McMillan is huge, but when you look at their overall roster, they were definitely a loser in the portal, much more than they were a winner. Uh, this was a team that I expected to be potentially the Big 12 preseason favorite heading into 2024. And now they're in the conversation, but they're maybe more in my top five than my top two, like I thought maybe a few weeks ago. Uh, and part of that is the attrition of players. Part of that is the attrition of staff as well. And so... You know, ultimately, I, I'm hopeful that Arizona can figure it out long term. But like you said, they, they've got some structural things that they're going to have to figure out in their university before we can really think about them as even just a football program at this point. That's that's a good first pick. I'm going to talk about two of them at the same time, Alabama and Washington. Uh, I mean, oh, my gosh. Actually, and even they're tied to, to Arizona because the Washington <laughs> staff change ties to Arizona, Arizona then kind of, you know, put San Jose State in a tough position as well. But so let's start with Alabama. Obviously, I mean, <laughs> one day the greatest coach of all time was going to retire and it was going to be a mess. There was no way around it. Uh, I think that maybe like the best case scenario that could have happened for Alabama with Nick Saban retiring would have been them getting left out of the playoff 
because then he might have done it in December instead of in mid-January when the portal window is closed for everybody else. Now, I, I will say, too, I think that Alabama is going to be a huge buyer in the uh, in the post-spring portal window. I am not concerned about whether Alabama is going to try and be competitive long term. But you do lose. Uh, obviously a number of players who we've talked about, by the way, Isaiah Bond, Caleb Downs. Uh, I, I believe the number was out of the top six players in the 247 transfer, transfer portal rankings, Alabama gave up four. So <laughs> like they're losing a level of player that nobody else is losing. It's also because even with the losses, they have a level of player that nobody else can really match. And so, you know, look, Caden Proctor is another name that I'm, I am i don't love that they lost. He was one of the top offensive linemen in the class of 2023. He's heading back home to Iowa now. So, like, they overall lost 30 transfers, not getting into, uh, of course, the staff and the off-field personnel that they lost. And another piece that I'll mention, too, is that uh, already we've seen Kalen DeBoer lose multiple members of his staff, Ryan Grubb left to be the offensive coordinator of the Seattle Seahawks. And they made an internal hire with Nick Sheridan being promoted, but that's not necessarily what people were sold on. And so they are in a tough position heading into their first year. Kalen DeBoer is a magician. I'm I'm not that concerned about Alabama. I think that they're going to have a very fine nine win season next year uh, and then have a chance to build from there. But this is not a national championship contender this upcoming year, and that's what we've come to expect at Alabama. And, and to tie into that just real quick, Washington already was having a mass exodus because of just the number of upperclassmen mm-hmm. that they had. And now you add to that a number of players transferring because they signed on to play for Kalen DeBoer. I, I know that uh, whenever the meetings and all were first happening, I, I follow a number of Arizona fans on Twitter, so they took some glee in this. Uh, Jed Fish walked into a pretty empty room to go talk to the team for the first time because a number of players were ready to jump into the transfer portal. So I, I do think ultimately they looked like a program entering the Big Ten that could become one of the elite programs, that could be with Oregon, could compete with Ohio State and Michigan without Jim Harbaugh and Penn State. I think that now they are in the middle of the pack and a case that I've made for a long time is that I think that when you make a transition to a new conference, having success early can help set the tone of what you are in this conference for the next several years. And Washington looked like they were going to be on the high end of that. And now it looks like they're going to be on the low end of that. So uh, obviously Nick Saban's coaching change. I mean, it's it changed so many programs. I mean, you even have, for example, Kane Womack leaving South Alabama to become the uh, the defensive coordinator and Mo Linguish from Buffalo leaving to become a position coach at Alabama. And so it's a crazy position to, to be in. And so many careers and so many programs will ultimately be touched by Nick Saban retiring. But Alabama and Washington here on February 26th, I, I think are both losers. I agree. And, um, my goodness, it's it's kind of fun to just think about some of these these aspects. So it's so funny when I was um, creating my list, I almost said, "Well, if I was going to create a potential individual who's a winner, Kalen DeBoer 
Um, and it's weird to say that Kalen Moore is actually, in my mind, one of the best winners of this offseason, but that is not Alabama's benefit. But I mean, who could replace Nick Saban? It's such a tough thing to expect that. I mean, we're going to resurrect, you know, Bear Bryant. He'd be confused. It's like what we can openly pay them now. You know, uh, it, would, it would it would it would be hard to say. But that said, um, you know, I think the 12 team playoff is going to be more forgiving. So if he can get a 10-win season out of it. You said nine, which I think is more plausible, but if he can get a 10-win season, suddenly Alabama's in the playoff, and I think the fans, while a little, there'd be a little trepidation out of how they got there, they, they'd still be pleased for now. I mean, again, we'd let it move forward as people get used to it. But, yeah, he was just handed the keys to one heck of a vehicle, um, and even if he bombs, he's going to be set for life. So I, I don't really feel bad for him. So I'm like, he's he's at the pinnacle. Like, oh, what's the worst thing? I, I kind of flame out at Alabama and then collect a bunch of money and go retire wherever I want to retire at that point. I do really want to know what happened with Grubb. Like, was it that he really wanted to be in the NFL or was it that he got there and he's like, ah, I'm not sure I'm into this? Um, because, again, we always remember that Saban tried to hire him away the, the previous season. But Another team heading into the season, and I love the way you said that, like setting the tone when you get into a new conference. And Washington, I think, is a bit of a surprise because we expected them to be somewhat strong, stronger than they are now heading into the Big Ten. But a team that was already kind of seemingly a weak addition that only seems weaker with how the offseason's gone is UCLA because they had a demoralizing way to lose a head coach. I mean, everyone, Chip Kelly departing was not a surprise. It was kind of a weird mix of UCLA's athletic department. Part of the reason they jumped to join the Big Ten is they needed extra money to help fund everything because it's an enormous athletic department. I mean, they compete in virtually every sport, which is why I think now they're they're number two. I mean, Stanford, uh, UCLA, and USC are one, two, three in NCAA championships. And I mean, by a country mile. If you look at like, then it's like Oklahoma State, but there's like a 50 championship gap between those two programs. So that's how much they care about sports. So they were trying to to pour money into it by by going to that. But then at the same time, um, Chip Kelly, they couldn't really, they didn't really want to buy him out. So he gets his job. I think what really hurt was seeing him take the Ohio State job. That I mean, that was unprecedented. I don't think any of us have ever thought we'd see the day where a soup, I mean, I don't know what you call them, the super two or however you want to call them, like a top tier conference head coach goes without being fired to be, this isn't Dino Babbers from Syracuse joining, you know, Arizona. This is a guy who was being paid and could have gotten potentially a, uh, some kind of, you know, if they fired him, they would have had to pay him a lot more money, but you know, all, all money to him. Sean Foster, I still think it, it feels too much like they got stuck. It feels, I mean, I, I don't know if it's been finalized yet at the time we're recording this, but yeah, Eric Bieniemy is going to potentially come in to be their offensive coordinator. But what's weird to me is he's always come up as a head coaching candidate. He's been a head coaching candidate for other schools like Colorado before they went with Deion Sanders, which arguably, okay, that's a bigger splash. But, um, you know, it's weird when you have to hire someone who could be your replacement or I, I'm like wondering in my head, how did the enemy not get the head coaching job and you gave it to, you know, to foster and maybe switch him around, have Deshaun Foster elevate to being offensive coordinator. Then you have at least what seemed in my mind be a little bit more of a sensible uh, hierarchy between a veteran and a, and still a fairly young coach. But the other problem that is is still nagging UCLA for all the money that, again, they're, they're tight on cash. Starting next year, they got to start paying their calimony. Uh, for those who don't refer, who may have forgotten, uh, Cal, very upset that UCLA was leaving and before they went to the ACC, went to the uh, Board of Regents or the Board of Chancellors or however they call it at uh, 
you know, the UC system. And now UCLA has to pay and it, they have not settled on the amount of money. As far as I know, that's not public yet. And it would be public because that would be very much FOI, uh, Freedom of Information Act available. They have to pay a chunk of money to Cal um, for, I don't know, not coaching for UCLA. I don't know. It's, it's whatever they have to, they have to pay Cal for the, for the, for just simply existing. Um, so I, I'm going to say UCLA is definitely a loser, uh, in this off season so far. And again, all of that said, these, these teams we're talking about, especially in the loser category could surprise us, but I just on paper, especially again, losing some of the talent they've lost. Um, again, we were just talking about Dante Moore heading to Oregon. It's, it's hard for me to say UCLA has improved at all. Yeah, no, they were definitely on my list. I, I think that just the weirdness of all of it and the relative lack of direction, it feels like this program has right now has just been bizarre. And it wasn't a huge surprise that Chip Kelly left. I think the timing of it was unfortunate. I think, uh, I was a little surprised, too, how unprepared it felt like they were for it in some ways. I know that they did an outside search, but it kind of it didn't feel like it was all that comprehensive at the same time. And I think that when you know that your coach is maybe a flight risk, that's a conversation that you maybe need to have. Uh so ultimately, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. Uh, they're kind of in a similar position as Arizona, where I think that there are issues above their football program that I'm very concerned and interested in. Long term, I mean, again, this is a great program. They're going to be making a lot of money in the Big Ten, but I don't know what their pitch is right now, and it seems like people are going to be benefiting a lot more from playing them than UCLA will from playing anybody else. So it'll be a dynamic to watch. I want to preface this one with. I, I'm not saying that they're a full-on loser. They did a lot of really nice stuff this offseason, and also they're the, uh, this might be a hint, the best program in college football right now. But, like, Georgia had a weird offseason. Like, like they, they had a weird, weird offseason in a lot of ways. They lost a couple of key staff members. Del McGee just became the head coach at Georgia State, which, by the way, is way overdue. He should be a head coach already. Uh, key recruiter on the offensive side for that program. Brian McClendon, their wide receivers coach, also uh, kind of heading out as well. I believe he got an NFL opportunity. And they just had a little more attrition than I expected. And they did bring in some big time players to, to help lighten the load just a little bit. But uh, you know, Marvin Jones being an example, he ended up going to, uh, he was a top 10 player in the class of 2023. He ended up transferring to Florida State. Uh, I, I will say, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a CBS guy. I'm a 247 guy. On3 has a great uh, kind of rankings of talent in versus talent out when you look at Transfer Portal. And out of 70 teams, Georgia's 67th because they lost 21 players in game seven. Now, part of this is like they have such an excess of talent. I, I don't want to overreact to this. George is going to be at worst my number two team in the preseason, but it just felt a little weird. J just the number of players going, the quality of players who ended up transferring, the, the some of the staff changes that ended up happening. Fran Brown. I just wanted to throw Fran Brown there because we have to. He was the another Fran big Brown, of course. Yeah, of yeah. course. No, of course. One of my uh, one of my coaches to watch in college football, defensive backs coach, now the head coach at Syracuse. So like, it was just a weirder offseason than I'm used to an all time program having. And I again, I don't think it's going to impact them in 2024. And I also want to say, I mean, they made some 
incredible moves in the transfer portal. London Humphreys was one of the top-rated overall players as a wide receiver in the transfer portal. He's heading to the University of Georgia. Trevor Etienne goes from their rival, by the way, Florida, (laughs) ultimately ends up at Georgia. So again, this is not... This is not panic or concern necessarily. It's just something that when we talk about a program being Nick Saban's Alabama, like I, I can't remember Nick Saban's Alabama having an offseason quite like this. And uh, next year, they'll probably have the number one recruiting class in the country and hire the most amazing coordinators that I've ever heard of in my life and be fine. But it's just something that I'm like kind of keeping a bit of an eye on that this was weird. and. Now I've got to like go back and have to believe in Mike Bobo again. <laughs> you know, and I think you brought up something interesting, um, or at least when, as you were talking, I thought, you know, if anything, Georgia just managed, because this has been such a strange offseason with how late it ran, especially with Nick Saban's departure and, and the, the ramifications of it. I mean, he's very much like a Darth Vader character, like the whole story, the whole universe of Star Wars and college football surrounds actually this one individual, what he did. <laughs> you know, we're living in in the in the throes of, of his departure. But uh, at the same time, you know, I think they're happy just to have survived as well as they have, given all the things that happened at all those other programs. Because as we were just talking about, three of the uh, – Three of the four uh, playoff teams all lost their head coaches. So, you know, at this point, uh, I believe Georgia and Texas are just glad they made it through um, with, with the least amount of shakeups, uh, given that. Because, again, both of them had coordinators that became head coaches. Both of them had some transfers. Both of them brought in some great transfers. But I agree. I think they they certainly have not had been as big of a splash as we might have expected. But I think all in all, a lot of them are just happy it's over. And then they can kind of focus on being Georgia again, which thankfully they've got a lot of those key components. You know, I'm going to kind of group a a bunch of teams together for another group that I feel has lost this offseason. And that's members of the mid-two, for lack of a better word, the ACC and the Big 12. Because for some of you may remember, a little earlier this offseason, the Big 10 and SEC suddenly had a a wake-up moment that, you know what, we're rivals, yes, but we can also kind of band together a little bit and create their joint advisory committee, you know, and and with that, they can start to sort of uh, throw their weight around uh, in a way that, sure, there had been some level before, but it had always been kind of the herding cats mentality of the Power Five. Um, obviously, the Alliance was an attempt to kind of counteract some of the power that was forming that went disastrously. But with this joint advisory committee, it seems like, and, and we've been hearing the conversations about how the playoff might expand after the next two years. And will that be something where there'll be more automatic qualifiers for uh, the Big Ten and SEC? That's something the two of us have talked about on the previous show. But heading into this, I believe that's going to put all of those other programs. It just it, it only underlines the weaker position they're in and how that manifests in in interest in the programs, in recruiting could be a bigger macro issue. And I mean, it really is. I mean, the the sheer amount of money we're talking about over time is going to accrue, is going to make a difference. And especially with the, um, well, the Big 12, to their credit, seems to be the the more solid of the two, but... The uh, the natives are restless in the ACC, and and if the, any the the potential existential risk that that conference has is is another reason why. So all of that happening this off season, I'm I'm wary for those teams. I don't know what the future holds for them. I'm not sure, especially when we were talking about in the previous program, if there is some grander shakeout 
of the G5 from the Power Four, if they split apart from each other, inevitably there's a haves and have nots. I don't think we're going to see, oh, everyone's an equal now. It's like suddenly they're going to be the bottom tier of, of, of this greater conference. So uh, I just, I feel that a lot of this has been underlined watching these, uh, watching the shift in power and watching the, 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 the power of these super two conferences assert itself more as they start to unite. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a dynamic that I think we're watching very closely over not just this upcoming season, but long term. And we talked about it. I mean, the SEC and Big Ten are already kind of trying to assert their power with the playoff process, uh, potentially trying to bring in four auto bids like they need more auto bids to have teams make the playoff. Maybe you should just make good football teams. But this is going to be something that happens long term. And, you know, it's funny. I had somebody uh, essentially tweet at me like, well, if this w- if these were businesses, like this is how they would advocate for their, you know, for their business and shareholders. It's like, well, yeah, but at the same time, like if they were businesses, we'd have antitrust laws and uh, the, the federal government to come in and say, no, nah, that's anti-competitive. Uh, you'd think that sports of all things would be a place where we wouldn't have anti-competitive measures, but that's kind of the world we live in right now where where sports are kind of more being run at this level in boardrooms than necessarily uh, on the playing surface necessarily. But that's this is, I think, a bigger conversation uh, maybe for another day. To kind of keep going, I, I don't... What is the pathway for Florida doing this thing next year? I, I am... I, I just don't... I they have one of the hardest schedules that I've ever seen in my life this upcoming season. They also ended up losing, I think, 23 transfers this offseason from a team where there's plenty of opportunity available. Like we mentioned, Trevor Etienne going to their direct rival. Like this, this is crazy. Princely uh, Uman Lilian, like like I mentioned, going to Ole Miss, their top edge rusher. This stuff is not normal. This is not what a third-year staff uh, has happened. And it's it's crazy because I was very excited about the Billy Napier hire when it was made. And I think that he's done a lot of things on paper that make sense. But this, this has just not happened the way that it's supposed to happen. And just to run through their schedule real quick. Miami, then they play Sanford, Texas A&M, at Mississippi State, UCF. So like, Playing Miami and UCF and Florida State in non-conference play, that seems like a very bad idea. At Tennessee versus Kentucky versus Georgia, at Texas versus LSU versus Ole Miss at Florida State. Are there five wins on that schedule? Like, this is crazy. This this is... I, I do not... I cannot remember a program and a coach at, like, a major program heading into a season like... Oh my God, I don't even know what, what success looks like next year. Like, I, I don't know, like, what the pathway is to where they have success. What what do they do? Well, they lost their best running back, one of their best offensive players. I, I just, this is crazy. Does this feel like Clay Helton's final years at USC? Can I, and I'm going to just say, I want to qualify this because you had me thinking, like, wow, the Gators have dropped off since Urban Meyer and they've gone through a series of. 10 years and Urban Meyer was the Florida coach almost at the same time USC had Pete Carroll. And then you look at how both those programs is kind of like, yeah, not quite kind of think they got the guy doesn't quite get maybe one good season. It doesn't quite work out. And 
has has is Florida basically in that same boat right now? So I, I think there are two differences. One, I mean, Clay Helton has had success or had success at USC, right? He had good seasons and it kind of petered out. Uh, and I think the other piece is that, I mean, we, we just like have never really seen this work for Florida. So the comparison that I'd make, who boy, I don't feel good saying this. Um, I think the comparison that I'd make is Charlie Strong at Texas, where you have a coach who had success previously. Now, Dan Mullen is not Mac Brown, and please do not take that as me saying that he is. But they were in New Year's Six games. They were in conference championship games. They had a chance in some of these games, and things kind of just started to slide a little bit. And so Florida and Texas acted quickly and were like, nope, we are not letting this slide anymore. We're making a change right now. And now you're in a position where maybe you actually would have just been better off if you didn't make that change. Now, I I, I don't know whether Dan Mullen would have figured it out necessarily. I don't know whether Mac Brown, uh, if he had stayed at Texas, would have figured it out. But at the same time, what happened next was so much worse, like historically worse in the context of what is going on at these programs. I, like, I, I feel bad for Billy Napier. I, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand. Like, they, they had a really good recruiting class that kind of fell apart at the end there. I mean, they do have a five-star quarterback coming in. That's one thing that you do at least have to like about it. But I, I just don't – again, I like Billy Napier. I think he did a fantastic job at Louisiana. I thought that LSU was going to regret huge time passing on him uh, whenever they decided to bring in Brian Kelly. And it just – nothing has gone right. This this feels like it's cursed. I, I don't have <laughs> any better – any better way to explain what's going on right now other than that I think that Florida feels cursed right now. It's all about that cleat eat. They got to find that cleat and bury it or burn it or do something to it. And, uh, and <laughs> this, you know, it's like that, that Japanese baseball team where they, they won a championship and threw a ceramic statue of Colonel Sanders into the river, the, uh, the handsome yep, tigers yep, yep. and it became the curse of the Colonel. Yep. So they, they dredged it and found it and brought it out. And then they won the national championship for the first time in like 40 years. It's thought like last season in, in Japanese pro baseball. So, uh, you know, that, maybe that's it. It's that's the curse. They got it. They've got to figure out how to close that out. It's just, it's been a, it's like a poltergeist situation. They got to have someone, you know, otherwise, uh, uh, the swamp will implode or something like that. I'm not sure, but uh, I think that's a good that's a good spot to wrap that up. I, I don't know if I want to. I want to. I'm not going to try and top that one. You know, um, it's been a while since I've asked a question, or one of us has asked closing with a question that might be kind of interesting. And I have one. And you, again, for those listening, Sean has no idea what I'm about to ask. But um, what would you, where do you think AI will eventually play in college football? So I think that long term, I, I well, let me actually ask a clarifying question. Do you mean in terms of the product or like the viewing experience? I'm going to say well, a product. And I, I think and I'm trying to get creative here, too. Like, would it be against the rules to allow AI to start calling plays? I mean, like ask Madden, but with an actual intelligence factored into it. I, I think there's a couple pieces of this one. I think that coaches will be very reticent to give that level of power to a computer, right? Like, I think that kind of the balance where we're at now, where we have these models and, uh, you know, calculations and all of this, but ultimately the decision is made by a person. I think that long term, even like when we're talking 40 years or whatever, I, I think that's probably more 
where we're going to be. Now, I, I think what's going to be interesting is like, for example, uh, you know, right now, like I, I remember Tom Herman, he like famously had a binder that said, here's when you should go for it. Here's when you shouldn't. Right. Uh, I think that maybe we might end up in a position where like an analyst up in the box is like, you know, dealing with AI or chat GPT or whatever. <laughs> uh, and kind of saying like, what are the probabilities and that? So I, I feel like it's more going to be a tool to streamline what they're doing already. I don't think that we're going to end up in a position where, well, cause I, I think the other piece of this too is, you know, I, I, I think that humans are still in, obviously look in a hundred years, <laughs> this might be a different conversation, but I think that humans at this point are still generally better at quickly reading and reacting than AI is right. Like I think that when you look at the, like, the processing time, like it's it's not like AI is going to be able to uh, to quickly look at a coverage and immediately know what play is in the split second that you have to communicate a play to somebody, right? Like I, I think that that's outside of the bounds of what AI can reasonably be expected to do. I think it actually another piece where you might see it more is in the process of evaluating film. I think that that might be a place where we see it a bit more where uh, whether it can model things or whether it can, uh, you know, track data just at a, a maybe more efficient rate. But I ultimately think, and, and this is kind of my perspective on AI in general, is that long term, I expect that it's going to be more like the Internet was right where where at one point I'm a journalist, right? I was calling in my story so that they could put it into the, you know, <laughs> into the actual printing press. Well, now, like, I can submit my words through the internet. And so something that took 30 minutes takes one second. I, I think it's going to be more like that than it is going to be. Oh, again, I, I mean, we're going through this right now. I, I don't think that in the very short term, there's going to be a lot of value in replacing your podcast with AI, right? Like, I, I think that people, you know, I, I think that there's a level of diminishing returns with that, that AI, especially at this point, can't bring to the table. But I also think, you know, because again, here's the question that I've been asked before too. When do we reach a point of even replacing players with robots or AI to where it's not necessarily a personal game, but you're kind of just, well, like, I don't know, I, I think that part of the interest and excitement of sports is the humanity of it. I, I don't think that necessarily you can replicate that. I mean, yeah, if you if you make a, a robot who can run a 40-yard dash in 1.7 seconds, that is really cool. But I think that people want to see uh, the humanity of it at the same time. And I think that that'll be true of players. I think that'll be true, generally speaking, of coaches. And these pieces will more be in order to help people do their jobs better than it will be replacing those jobs. It'll be fun to see how the, at, now that they're going to start implementing helmet communication, how much that will also play into it, being able to run a lot of data and just kind of send that to your player really quick, you know, and of course cutting it off at certain points, obviously it's not going to be live. Otherwise that'd be fascinating. Like, Hey man, there's a guy behind you. you know? <laughs> run, run, run. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Number 42 is open. You know, I, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> probably a little more smooth than that. But um, my goodness, you know, you actually, by the way, I love that you went to the, I call it the Cyberball question because I grew up playing that game on my, it was an Atari arcade game that I had on my Genesis Cyberball, which was uh, with, with robots. And, and actually, I, I, was a, I was nerdy enough that I read the manuals of all my video games and they, they actually, the scenario was like in the future, 
players kept getting busted for having bio enhancements, mechanical enhancements. So they just replaced them all with robots. And um, I actually started thinking like <laughs> in my own club, because I teach a, a class at the University of Minnesota, and we started talking about it. it wasn't even on my topic of law, but I was like, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the next big questions will be for society. And and one of my students said, I think it's going to be how we deal with with bio enhancements, human enhancements, like not only uh, the the classic cyborg stuff, but neural enhancements and things like that. So that'll be a fun that'll be a fun bridge to cross when we reach that talking about college football. You know, I mean, because if it becomes more uh, widespread, I mean, what kind of advantage does it give? And uh, well, that'll be an interesting future. My goodness, I should we should get a futurologist on here. Those are always fun. Ask a bunch <laughs> of random questions here, like all these awesome ideas that will never pan out. No, and I, I think this is sort of a fascinating question in the mid to long term because, you know, we've we've had people before say, well, like, what's the difference? Uh, you know, Connor Stallions was just attending a game, so it's bad because he filmed, right? So, so I think that we've reached a point, generally speaking, where we understand that adding technology takes away from what we're watching. You know, we, we have the example too, right? And I mean, I'm not, I, I pray that no Houston Astros fans are listening to this because they're insane. But like, you know, the, the alleged Jose Altuve buzzer, right? Which, you know, probably didn't happen. But if it had, right? Like, how much is that inappropriate? That he has a buzzer that can identify pitches that are coming, right? Like, I think that people view that as crossing the line. That at its core, when we have these competitions, we can, you know, continue to grow uh, coaching. We can continue to grow uh, training and development. But that at its core, we are seeing, quote unquote, normal humans doing things against each other. And again, ultimately, if you reach a point where we're like, well, we want the fastest and biggest and best. Yeah, we can create robots that do that better. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, you know what I haven't done a whole lot of is watch any Madden Sims, right? Like, yeah. I, I don't care. <laughs> like, hey, maybe maybe that's able to, to give a great game. I don't care. That's not interesting to me that it misses the point of what it is. And I think that also another piece of this that protects against that is I'm a journalist and my job is to bring you the stories of the people who are involved with sports as well. And so ultimately, and even again, we're, we're, we've gone way off of uh, where we started, but you know, I think <laughs> a last piece of this is if you're a kid, you grow up and think maybe someday I can play in the NBA or the NFL. And these are people just like me. And maybe I can do it. If you're watching and you're like, wow, cool. We built a robot like, or wow, cool. We added new legs onto this person. Like, I don't think that anybody will kind of look at that and, and see themselves in it. I think it's very important with sports that you feel a part of it and see yourself in it. And I think that fundamentally to me, that's a piece that I think uh, long term uh, that somebody will try. Somebody will absolutely try it. And I think it will be a total colossal failure. That's a knife through the heart of STEM majors. That's all I got to say. I wasn't one, but I mean, just, <laughs> they got enough, man. They got enough. Let me have my BA. What think of? But I want to add to what you said. The part of the reason a lot of us are huge fans of college football and enjoy covering it and watching it is because of the chaos factor compared to the NFL. It isn't as polished. There's too many people and a lot of, not everyone can be an NFL talent. And we see those every week in the college football world when, you know, they, Oh, why did you do that? You know? Oh my goodness. Well, 
I think that's a good spot to wrap this up. Uh, we wanted to thank all of you for listening. We wanted to thank our producer, Joey Alberti, not a podcast himself. He, he's actually a human being. I just want to be clear, not an AI. Um, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on X and TikTok at CFB Survivor Show. He's Shahan Jayaraja. You can find his work on CBSSports.com and Jayan Jayaraja on X and TikTok. I'm Bob Ekayeri. Thanks for listening, everyone. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.